right. Well, hey, for those of you that I have yet to meet, my name is Prentice. I get the privilege to be the lead pastor here at Bethany West Seattle. Uh, and I just want to say welcome to those that are here in person. Uh, welcome to those that are watching online or perhaps will be watching sometime uh, later this week. Uh, and as you walked upstairs or to the sanctuary, you probably have, uh, you, you probably smelled something, uh, bacon, it's bacon. And so uh, if you're a fan, even if you're not, we have something for you, we'd love to see you. Even if you're watching online, uh, this, is kind of, this was kind of wild to me. Somebody from our staff was pointing out some of our online metrics, and there's so many people watching online. Uh, and if that's you, wonderful, glad you joined us uh, virtually. But hey, if you want to come and join us for breakfast, uh, there will be no look of judgment or no walk of shame. We will receive you and would love to eat with you as well. So uh, that is today. Uh, so we are continuing in our series uh, in First John. It's the letter that John wrote, uh, the same John that wrote the Gospel of John. Uh, and he wrote this book describing what it means to love God and love others. And, and so <clears throat> the whole premise of this series has been, hey, behind the layers of how we approach our faith, oftentimes we overcomplicate our beliefs and our journey and our walk with Christ. And what John is saying at the end of the day, yes, theology matters. Yes, how we read the Bible matters. Yes, you know, how we think about God and worldviews matter. But at the end of the day, the most important thing about following Jesus is to simply love God and to love others. And, and, and wow, in so many ways, I would say even for myself as, as the church, as people that claim to love Jesus, we've missed that. And so I hope that this week and even today becomes a reminder of what loving God and what loving others is about. And, and I will say this, I have nothing against Valentine's Day. Uh, we celebrate, if you celebrate Valentine's Day or Galentine's or Palentine's, that's wonderful. But I would say that John here flips what love looks like upside down. And, and it's not exactly what we as a culture has defined love to be. And so... With that said, uh, our text comes from 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 through 18. And, and actually, I, I want to say one more thing. Uh, more importantly than Valentine's Day, uh, just last week, uh, we started uh, Black History Month. And of course, uh, our hope as a church is that we recognize um, every people, not just on a particular month, but Every day of our lives, just celebrating the diversity and celebrating uh, cultures, not out of a sense of appropriation, but out of honor and, and love and appreciation. And so uh, I'm, I'm kind of putting our staff on the spot here, uh, but if you follow us on Instagram or Facebook or whatever, I want to make sure that we uh, send out some resources. Yeah, so... Yeah? Okay, cool. So I, I want to make sure that we have resources, whether it's books or uh, nowadays Instagram accounts to follow or blogs or YouTube channel or whatever. We will post that up there for you to not just hear about Black History Month, maybe for a second at church or maybe at work for a second, but for you to, for all of us, myself included, to, to really 
learn and do our part in understanding uh, the beauty and even the hardships and the challenges of our country and how we can participate in making it better uh, as far as equity and justice is concerned, especially as followers of Jesus. So uh, with that said, 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 through 17 says this, this is how you know what love is. <clears throat> Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. <clears throat> if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or a sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech but with actions and in truth. Let's pray. God, thank you that you've called us to another level of loving others. It's not just with words. It's not just with the way we feel and think, but it actually is a manifestation of understanding your love for us, uh, and that impacts others. God, may your light shine in and through us. That means to serve others and to love others sacrificially and radically like you did by sending your son Jesus on the cross. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen and amen. All right. Uh, a couple weeks ago, Maria purchased, my wife Maria purchased a large shelf from Ikea. And I know that already triggers some of you, this, the word Ikea, as far as stress and panic is concerned. And, and as soon as this Ikea shelf was delivered to our house, I immediately thought of two things. First, oh no, she's going to ask me to help put this Ikea shelf together. And secondly, I thought, okay, if she asks me to put this together, then that may not be very good for our marriage. Because again, if you've ever built Ikea furniture, especially with somebody else, you might know exactly what I'm talking about. It could be quite stressful. Uh, and, uh, and I was looking at this, and, and she didn't, and it was, it was wild because she put it together by herself, and the interesting and the funny part is she looked at me and said, wow, that was easy. That was easy, and it was, it, it was great. It turned out just fine, and, and I would say uh, that's one of those statements where you end with, says nobody ever in the history of anyone putting together Ikea furniture, that they did this, and it was easy, and it was quick. But lo and behold, it happened. But here's the deal. For the most of us, we look at these instruction manuals, especially if we've ever been to Ikea. It's stressful, and it produces anxiety and confusion. And along the way, we mess it up. And I don't know about you, but I've done this before where I've built an entire thing, and there's pieces that are missing, and it's wobbly. And I figure out, okay, here's where I messed up. Now I have to unscrew a bunch of things and put it together. And finally, after two and a half days, I built a little table from Ikea. And oftentimes, the funny thing is, when we look at the scriptures, when we look at our Bible and the spoke and God's word, oftentimes it can feel like an Ikea manual or instruction, or at the very least, we treat it that way. A very complicated book with so many instructions, 
and it's our duty or our obligation to try to figure out what it says. And, and so many times I've heard people come up to me and say, Prentice, like, I don't, I don't know how to read the Bible. Like, I didn't go to school. I didn't study it. I don't, to be honest, I don't necessarily read the Bible all the time. I've never read it from front to back. I don't read books about the book, uh, uh, the Bible. I don't, you know, meet with people. So sometimes it's really hard for me to understand what the Bible is trying to say. How am I supposed to understand this very complicated and old and ancient book? And oftentimes it produces a bunch of anxiety and insecurities and even fear because I would argue that oftentimes we approach this Bible as if we are approaching an instruction manual, perhaps one from Ikea, complicated, confusing, hard to understand. And see, what we do oftentimes is we read the Bible as an instruction manual, or we view the Bible as an instruction manual to oftentimes check our behavior. Am I doing things right? Rather than viewing it as God's word to not check our behavior, but to check our hearts. Now, don't get me wrong. Behavior matters, and the way we treat others certainly matters, and the way we live out our lives, it actually matters. The way we act, it does matter. But... As followers of Jesus, it should be a byproduct of what we already believe and understand and have received from Christ. And so we look at the Bible, and we got it all wrong sometimes, where I'm like, I'm looking at his instruction manual, tell me what to do, tell me how to live. And obviously, if we do that, that's going to create so much stress and anxiety. Instead, what if we looked at the Bible and said, it's not a book that tells us how to act or how to behave or even modify our behavior. It's a book that shares us what, who, who God is, who, who tells us uh, what Jesus looked like. Not only that, but how much Jesus loves us and what Jesus did on the cross on our behalf. And it's not until we understand and view the Bible as that, where then out of that we can start thinking about what behavior or the way that we live can change or be modified. You see, when we look at the Bible as just purely an instruction manual to check our behavior, Here's what I believe happened. Here's what happens often, I think. We think of following Jesus as doing all the right things, checking all the boxes, saying all the right things, listening to the right music, not listening to some music, whatever it is. And I would argue that we set ourselves up oftentimes for failure. Because when we look at the Bible as just purely instructions on things that we have to check off in our lives, we create these unrealistic expectation of how we should live. Impossible expectations the Bible becomes. Here's a few things that happens. We, we feel guilty or even shame because we oftentimes don't live up to these expectations. If you look at the Bible and say, okay, the Bible is just about doing right and, and, and reading the Bible X amount of minutes a day, about singing worship songs every day, about, you know, this or that, and if it's just a checklist, then it's no wonder that if we don't 
And if we're not able to check off all the lists, then we're just going to sit back and feel guilt and shame and say, well, I wasn't able to fulfill that. I, I must be a bad Christian. I must not love Jesus. I mean, that's some of the extreme. But oftentimes when we set up the Bible to have all these high, high expectations, I would even say impossible expectations, we end up experiencing shame and guilt because oftentimes we can't fulfill said expectations. I remember growing up, my pastor, my youth pastor at the time, would always uh, say that as a Christian, we should always have what back then would, would be called quiet times. If you've been around the church, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, devotions or the set-aside time to pray and to read the Bible in quiet. And, and don't get me wrong, I think it's a beautiful practice that we engage in. It's a discipline that I think is important. But I would also say, taken uh, out of context, it could be seen as just a chore. It could be seen as something to check off. And I remember my youth pastor would say, okay, every morning, youth group, I want you to have, before school, I want you to have 30 minutes of quiet time or, or QT. We call it QT, quiet time. You need to have this 30 minutes a day before you go to school. Uh, that's how you become a very good Christian. That's how you check off the box. That's what the Bible says to do, which I don't actually think the Bible says to do that. Anyways, he says to do that, then you have obeyed the Bible, and you'll be a good Christian. Got it. Okay. Thank you, you pastor. And I would go home, and for the first few days, I would, you know, do just fine. Like, I would wake up in the morning, even surprise my parents, like, what are you doing up so early? And I would say, I just want to read my Bible. Like, what? Okay. So I'd read the Bible for a half an hour, and I would go to school. And then after a few days, it got hard. You know, like, I'm a junior high kid. You know, this is an unfair expectation. Then I would wake up, and I would read maybe about five, maybe about ten minutes on a good day, and then I'd feel really guilty because I didn't want to read anymore. And so I would still like lock myself in my room and I wouldn't let myself go out until that 30-minute marker was up because otherwise I believe that I would be a bad Christian for not completing my 30 minutes of quiet time. And I remember feeling really guilty because I didn't do that. And even as, a, as an adult, I still feel that where I feel like the Bible is just things that we have to check off and these rules to obey. And if I view it only as that, quickly it'll turn into a book that brings me guilt and shame because I can't do everything that I think the Bible is expecting me to do. So there's a lot of shame and guilt when we have that framework of understanding of what the Scripture is all about. Secondly, I would say that not only is it bringing shame or guilt, it even pushes us off to the other side of judgmentalism. Now, on one side, if we feel like we can't get it all right, there's another side where we feel like we are getting it all right. I mean, there's moments in my life, especially even as a youth, even as an adult, like, oh yeah, I I read the Bible. Oh yeah, I listen to Christian music. Oh yeah, I you know, abstain from this or that or whatever it is. Oh, I go to church every Sunday. Oh, I sing worship songs while doing the dishes. Oh, man, I, I you know, I do everything right. What the, what the Bible says to do, I check every single box. And, and the danger of viewing that is then you see someone else who 
may not. Maybe it's me. Maybe it's someone who doesn't feel like they check off all the boxes. We have this uppity, self-righteous arrogance of judging others for really oftentimes the very same things that we do. And lastly, it just creates a sense of anxiety. When we read the Bible or view the Bible as just these instructions that we just have to check off, it'll either create uh, an anxiety in us because there's so much to be thinking about, to do. It's like we're walking around on eggshells. Am I obeying the Bible? Am I not obeying the Bible? Am I doing all the right things? Am I, doing, am I messing up? Oh my gosh, what if I do mess up? Then we go into shame. Or if we think highly of ourselves and say, oh, well, I am checking everything off. There's a whole list. I'm doing everything right I'm listening to Switchfoot. I'm listening to Hillside. I think I just dated myself if you've been around the church for a long time. And I'm doing all these things right. But look at that person. That person's not living right. So we either enter into this place of shame or even judgment when we don't see the Bible for the way it's supposed to be. Now John here, as we just read, gives us a very different way of looking at the scriptures, particularly where the scripture talks about what loving God and what loving others looks like. Remember, and again, I don't have time to unpack all of this, but if you missed it, John is writing to a particular context in history. It's towards the end of the first century, and John is writing to uh, Ephesus, which is like modern-day Turkey, uh, and he's writing because there's two prominent false teachings happening around the church. One, uh, as I've talked about, is this idea of Gnosticism, and, and the other is heterodoxy or orthodoxy, uh, and here's what they believe. The Gnostics believed that, the, that, that only the spirit mattered, that our physical bodies, who cares, because when we die, we're going to go to heaven, and we're just going to be spiritual entities, bodies, and so how that plays out is that they believe that Jesus was only a spirit, that Jesus was only a spirit. Jesus didn't have a physical body. Now, they believed in Jesus. They believed that Jesus was divine and Jesus was Messiah. And the only way that they can reconcile that the material was bad, our physical bodies were bad, is to say, well, there's no way Jesus can be bad in any way, shape, or form. So obviously, Jesus was like a walking ghost. Jesus was a walking spiritual deity uh, and was not human at all. So that was one false teaching. On the other side of that was the Orthodox Jews that didn't believe in Jesus' divinity at all. So if the Gnostics believed and elevated Jesus' divinity so much so that they reduced his humanity, the Orthodox did the very opposite. They said, well, Jesus couldn't be God because Jesus is human. So, so the Orthodox removed Jesus' divinity and elevated his humanity. And, and what John is saying is, no, no, you guys, you both have it all wrong. Yes, you may start to argue and debate as they were doing, but here's the deal. You both have it all wrong. You both are arguing over something that shouldn't be argued about. You've made things very complicated. And John is saying, I want to just unlayer all of this and make it very simple for you. Here's what it looks like to love God and to love others. Here's what it looks like to obey. 
See, if the Orthodox and the Gnostics, they looked at the Bible and said, okay, here's what the Bible says, or their Bible, the Old Testament, the Torah at the time, and says, okay, here's all the boxes I need to check off. And as I check all these off, here's what I get to. Jesus is not human, only spirit. Well, here's what this group goes to. Well, Jesus is not spiritual, only human. And John is saying, well, listen to me. You guys are both wrong. Because when we look at the scriptures, we see something very different. We see the true essence and the person of Jesus. And John says in 1 John 3.16, he says, this is how we know what love is. In other words, you guys are arguing about what it looks like to love God and love others. You think it's just looking at the scriptures and checking off all the boxes? John says, well, let me drop the mic on you for a second because you're both wrong. Here's what it's all about. This is how we know. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. That's it. You're overcomplicating things. You're looking at the Torah, you're looking at our Bible, and you're making something that up. You're making of something that's not even in there. Here is the essence of the gospel. Here's the essence of what it means to follow, love, and live the way that Christ called us to. It's to first understand that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Now, you have to understand, when, Jesus, when, when John says this, this is not only brilliant, but this was subversive. This is radical. Because here's the deal. In order to lay down your life, in order to, lay, in order to die for somebody, you, you, just kind of logic, you have to have a real body to be put to death. And so what he's essentially saying is he's addressing the Gnostics, and he's saying, you think Jesus is only the spiritual form, but guess what? Jesus laid down his body for us. In other words, obviously, Jesus was holy and divine, but Jesus was also human. So human that he was able to put to death his human body on behalf of us. So Gnostics, listen up. Jesus was fully God, yes, but Jesus was also fully human, which is how he was able to lay down his life, his physical life for us. And secondly, this is the other brilliance of John, in order to die for somebody, this was a very spiritual uh, conversation, in order for someone to die on someone's behalf, that person had to have been holy, had to have been God, the Messiah, the Savior. And so just in this one sentence, this, you want to know what love is? You want to know what it means to live out the love that God calls us to live? You're overcomplicated things by the, all the boxes you think you have to check off. But here's the deal. All you have to do, I'll make it simple for you, is number one, believe that Jesus Christ laid down his life. In other words, Jesus was a real human body, Gnostics. And the fact that he died is a big deal. 
Secondly, Jesus died for all of us on behalf of others. Orthodox, that means that Jesus is Messiah, Holy Savior. He's saying these really radical things. And I would bet that if you were a listener as a Gnostic or as an Orthodox, you would be blown away with what John was saying. So he says this. We have to understand the sacrificial love of Jesus through his death and resurrection on our behalf. Now we're gonna, we, we, we start to get into this thing called atonement theory. Like why, so why did Jesus have to die? What did that do? I don't really wanna go into the, the weeds. I think it's important. I don't wanna go into the weeds quite yet. Not, not today at least, we will, especially during Lent. Uh, but what I want us to know and understand and believe is that there was a sense of sacrifice. There was a radical sacrifice that happened on the cross on our behalf. And it's a sacrificial love. And John is saying, first and foremost, understand the work of Jesus and what Jesus did for us. And out of that understanding of Jesus' sacrificial love, that makes it possible for us to love others sacrificially. And I would argue oftentimes it goes in that order as well. When we understand that we are so loved, when we understand, and sometimes the hardest people to love is not others, sometimes the hardest person to love is ourselves. Because we think about the mistakes that we've made. We, we think about the boxes that we didn't check off. We think about the ways that we failed in our unrealistic expectation of what it means to follow Jesus. And we end up going backwards and saying, God, this, I, I'm not lovable. I'm not worthy. But we have to understand that God loves you and God loves me unconditionally. You are not the summation of your mistakes, of your, of, your, of your thoughts, of how you treated somebody just yesterday or maybe even this morning on your drive here. You are absolutely loved as children of God. So much so, and this is mind-blowing to me, you are loved so much that Jesus died on the cross on yours and mine behalf. And when Jesus resurrected from that death, there was new life that was possible for you and I. Jesus says, it is finished on the cross. I love that because we can use that and we can almost fill in the blank, the, the sense of unlovable or unworthiness. That is finished. When we think about who we are just in the context of our mistakes, of the hard road that we lived, of the, uh, of the ways that we treated people, it is finished. Look, Jesus says, all of that, it is finished. You are loved. I died for you. I was resurrected on your behalf, sacrificially, because I love you. End of story. And I would say this. When we actually embrace that and believe that sacrificial love of Jesus, then we can love others in that same fashion. 
And it's important to go in that order because if we skip that step, the way that we love others and the way that we serve others and, and, and do good works, as John calls us to do, if we don't have the framework that is coming from a place where Jesus loves me, Jesus died for me, then we do that with a sense of humility and equality and humanity rather than a place from above where, oh, I've got it all figured out. Oh, let me save you. Let me, you know, help you because I'm better. We may not say that out loud or use those words, but if we don't come from a proper place, the danger is that we'll view others as lesser and that's why we help others. No, that's not why we help others. We help others because God calls us to love others just as the way that God has loved us. And so we must remain in Christ. I love the verse, John chapter 15, verse 4. It says, remain in me, and I also will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Now, listen, I'm no bot botanist, right? I don't even know what it's called. Yeah, botanist, people that study plants and stuff. I'm not that guy, obviously. But I'm pretty sure it's impossible for a branch to grow first. It's impossible for the vine or the fruit to grow without the branch. I'm pretty sure there's an order of operation that there is a grower, but there's a vine. If you see this image, here's the order of operation. There's a vine, and from that vine is a branch. And from that branch, there, bear, there bears fruit. And Jesus says, if you, wanna, if you want an image of what this is all about, I am the vine. I give you water. I give you nutrients. I give you love. I give you everything you need to, need to grow. And so as a branch, we receive that nutrient, that love that Jesus given, has given us. We receive that. We embrace that. We believe that. And we say to ourselves, okay, because I know that I am loved and I'm being fed that love like a vine feeds the branch, then I can grow the fruit. Then I can do good things, not just for the sake of, good do, of doing good things, but for the sake of living out the love that is already in us. The love that God has given us is the kind of love that God wants us also to give away. But here's the deal. That love is costly. That love can be risky. That love can oftentimes be just straight up uncomfortable. Because here's the bummer, if I can say, here's the bummer of the passage that we just read. I wish it would just stop at, you know, the first verse where it says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Oh, man, wouldn't that be awesome? If, end of story, done. But the verse keeps going on. It says, so then we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Okay, that's, that's a little bit more bearable, okay? So, like, I, I know, okay, God, thank you for what you did. Thank you for your love. Yes, now I will love others. It says to love your brothers and sisters. In other words, okay, I can love my friends. I can serve my family. 
People that, again, people that agree with me, people that voted the same as me, people that look like me, people that speak the same languages with me, that share the same food as me, same interests. Yeah, I can love them, my brothers and sisters. Jesus, thank you. All right, I'm good to go. But wait a minute, it actually keeps going even further. Then John says, not only that, if anyone has material possessions, and the assumption here that John is saying is everybody has material possessions, and sees a brother or sister, sees somebody in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and with truth. Now it says to give away and lay down some of our material possessions. Now, that doesn't just include the things that we own. Here's, here's the crux of what John is saying. Again, sometimes love is going to be costly. You're going to have to give things up. Sometimes love is risky. I mean, even if you've been around romantic relationships or even uh, friendships, when you offer love, it's risky. Because what if that person doesn't love you back? Or what if that person hurts you? And spoiler alert, it'll probably happen. To love is scary. To, to love those that uh, agree with us and that is our friends and our family, that can, that can be easy. But Jesus is saying, you know what, look at what I did for you. The love that I've given you, I didn't just say Jesus from, he Jesus from heaven didn't say, hey, guess what? I love you. I hope that changes your life. Have a good day. Jesus says, I love you so much, I'm going to sacrifice myself for you. It cost Jesus his life. It was risky. It was painful inside and out. Jesus says, even Jesus says, God, if this is not true, well, please take this away from me. But if it is, then may it be so. John encourages, compels us to love others the way that Jesus has loved us, requires sacrifice. It has a cost. It's risky. It's scary. But nonetheless, Jesus says, love, like I have loved. And I love this part where John says, if you don't have pity on the people that are in need, how can the love of God be in you? You see, if we look at the original language in the Greek, the, the phrase, if you have no pity, literally translates into, if you have a closed heart. How often do we have a closed heart to love others because it costs so much? And I don't mean just this, this price, but it requires us of giving of ourselves. And so how quickly do we say, no, that's way too hard. I'm going to close my heart off to you because it's scary to love you, because of this sense of scarcity. If I give to you, then I won't have enough. 
because I'm afraid that you're going to reject me. Because what you fill in the blank, oftentimes we have a closed heart because to love somebody, to give of ourselves the way, especially the way Jesus has given to us sacrificially, is downright scary, it's costly, it's risky, and many times we just say no. And we go into our little comforts of our own home, not loving others sacrificially. Because remember, loving our friends and, and people that agree with us, and our that's easy. That's not loving sacrificially. That's important. To love is good. God calls us to love everybody. But love isn't just about giving Valentine's Day cards and saying I love you and these sweet things. John says, you want to love somebody? First of all, know what God has done for you and love others the same way. Love with risk and cost, even when it's scary, even when you don't want to. And until we understand this, it's going to be very hard for us to love others the way that God has called us to love. And I think here's where we need to start. We need a better imagination for the imago Dei. Imago Dei is a Latin word for the image of God. If we see everybody as an image of God, if we see everybody as someone who's created in the beautiful image of God, created by God, loved by God, is a child of God, I believe that changes everything within us. And no longer... Is it as scary or as risky? We become more willing to love and serve them. I think about even just a practical sense of when we go down downtown Seattle and see people experiencing homelessness. I'll be the first one to admit, you know, when they're asking for money or, or even food, oftentimes I say, no, nope, nothing, and I just walk off. And oftentimes I'm convicted because just not even making eye contact removes the humanity and the dignity in that person. But what if I changed the way I viewed that person and I viewed that person as the imago Dei, as someone who is loved by God, created in, in, in God's image? Maybe that would change my heart towards that person my behavior towards that person because internally something has changed first. My hope is that we would be committed to the flourishing of all people by loving them even if it costs us something. So here's three questions. It's not an exhaustive list, but here's three questions I would love for us to ask ourselves. How do we view our money? That's a very practical question when, it, when we think about serving, especially those that are in. Now, now, here's the deal. John, when he's saying that we should give of our material possessions, John is assuming that everybody has something to give. Some might have more to give than others. I'll be honest, this may be a shocker to you, but Elon Musk might have more to give than me, okay? That's a joke. That's obvious, right? I'm a, I'm a pastor. Like, trust me, he does. Now, whether he does or not, that's a whole different question. But everyone, we all have something to give. 
Now, oftentimes, we can check our hearts, not by whether we're checking off the scriptures, but checking our bank account statement. Where is it going to? Yeah, to give away actual monetary finances, maybe to a nonprofit, maybe to the church, maybe to somebody in need. That's risky. It's, cost, it's literally costly. But are we willing to love sacrificially? Really, are we willing to put our money where our mouth is? We say we love people. And John is saying, don't just talk about it, be about it. How do we view our money? Secondly, how do we view our time? Sometimes it's a lot easier to write a check. Or nowadays, to Venmo somebody. It's even easier to give money. Especially if you, have, if you feel like you have the resources, it's easier to give away money because you may have a lot of it. And if that's you, God bless your heart. But what about your time? How do you view your time? And it could be very practical. Maybe you have a friend that's in need. And you're like, oh gosh, I, I'd rather, for me, I'd rather, you know, sit at home and, and watch another episode of Love is Blind or... or I don't know, like there's so many other things that I could be doing than to call my friend who's in need and say, hey, do you want to have lunch together? Hey, do you want to have coffee? What about setting an alarm once a week just to check in a friend that you know that is going through a hard time? What if it's it's something bigger? What if you dedicate a couple hours a week to the homeless shelter or or to a women's shelter or to a a youth shelter or or feeding the homeless or or whatever it is, you, you fill in the blank. You think about that, and you're like, I don't have the time to do that because I'd rather veg out. I'd rather spend time with people I actually love being around. I'd rather go to the gym. I'd rather play video games. I'd rather do this or that. How do we view our time? And how do we view our priorities? What's important to you? Again, it goes back. Is it your money? Is it your time? Is it your status? Is it being comfortable in the confines of your own zip code by being around people that are similar to you? I encourage us this week to look and just evaluate these questions. doesn't mean I want you to just give away everything you have and no longer spend time with your loved ones. And it, no, that's not, a, that's not what I'm saying unless God's calling you to. There's people that have done that, Mother Teresa being one of them. But what if we have a different outlook on money, time, and priorities? Well, what if we started first by understanding God has given to us sacrificially? Now, does that change how we view our time, money, and priorities? What if I told you that you're, you're exactly where you're at, you have the money that you have, you have the time that you have, you have the priorities that you have, because God allowed it? Would that change the way you view that? This week, may we look outside of ourselves and not just view this book as a checklist. Because here's the deal. We can, we can do all the right things. We can write, wear the right T-shirts that says, I'm a Christian. We can wear the WWJD bracelets. We can listen to only Christian music. We could go to church every single Sunday. We can read the Bible for two hours a day. And we can still be downright jerks. Because we've missed the point. 
The point isn't just checking off the things that we think we need to check off. The point is understanding. Here's what John says. The point is this. Jesus laid down his life for you and me. That's how much Jesus loves us. And because of that, may we love others just as sacrificially. And I promise you, things will change. Strangers become family. Enemies become friends. Differences become a strength, not a deficit. Serving those in need will come from a place of humility, not self-righteousness. Where there's chasm, there will be bridges. Where there's judgment, I believe there will be curiosity. Where there's anxiety, there will be peace. Where there's resentment towards people, there will be empathy. That is understanding the power of the cross that Jesus has displayed on us. How can we love better this week? And as I invite the worship team back up, may we ask these questions. How do we view our money? How do we view our time? How do we view our priorities? Let's pray. God, thank you that you've loved us so sacrificially even with the chance that we would reject you, that we would fall away from you, you still loved us. And you sent your son Jesus to die for us. That's how much you loved us, that you would sacrifice your own body here on this earth so that we may experience that love and give that kind of love away to others. May we do that this week not just with our words that we speak, but the way that we live, with our time, with our resources, with what we deem as important in our priorities. Change our hearts, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen and amen. Let's finish with worship. And the way that we'll finish with worship is that we'll stand, and when you're ready, We'll come and take this communion cup. And I don't want you to take it quite yet. I just want you to come. We'll flow through the middle. You'll grab. Everyone's invited to the table. You'll grab one. You'll take it back to your seat. We'll worship. You can pray. You can pray about these questions. And a little bit later, I'll come back up, and we'll take this as a community. The body and the blood that was shed for us. When you're ready, come receive.